Hi, and welcome to the Circle of Film Podcast. I'm Ryan, and join me as we step into my top 10 May movies in today's episode. What's this? What's this? It's supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. What is this? What is this? It's a little bit late this month, uh, having to get back from Brazil, and then how long it took me to input all the data I'd collected from watching the movies while we were on vacation, and uh, then Incredibles 2 came out, and I had all these other episodes to do, so <clears throat> it's, it's a, a few weeks later than normal, but I'm here, and so... Like I said, this is my episode for my top 10 movies in May that I saw for the first time. Uh, and um, that's about it, you know, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, unlike pr- other months, you know, part, part in fact due to the vacation I was on, I uh, didn't see quite as many movies in May. Uh, only, only 136 different movies did I see in May, which compare that to April... I had seen 236, so a full hundred movies less in May than I saw in April. Uh, so, you know, it, it was a slower month, but that doesn't mean it, that there weren't, you know, a lot of great films that I got to see for the first time and really discover. Uh, the average rating of the movies I saw in May was about 44 and a half, uh, which is fairly decent. Uh, the average release year of the movies that I saw in May uh, came to 1995. Uh, so, skewing older, definitely skewing older. You know, once you factor in that I'm watching a 2018 movie almost every day with Movie Pass, it's fairly low. That's fairly low. And uh, there are a handful of movies that I saw in May for the second time, uh, or third or fourth time, that would have been in my top 10 if they had been the first time that I saw them, uh, but unfortunately, they were not, they do not qualify. Uh, All of them were watched on the flight to Brazil. Uh, Those were Thor Ragnarok, and then Star Wars Episodes 7 and 8 would have all made the list, but unfortunately, due to the criteria, they do not. So, those are left off, but the rest, uh, this is a pretty foreign language heavy list. Uh, half of the 10 movies are a foreign are in a foreign language, so it's really kind of trying to stretch out and, and discover some new stuff, and uh, I was successful. So let's jump in now to the actual top 10 right after this. Starting from the ground and working up, we're going to go with our my number 10 movie this month. Uh, it was, it's actually a documentary. It's the only documentary to make the list this month. I saw it on May 3rd, fairly early in the month. Um, this was before I had recorded my 2014 Circle of Film Awards uh, episode. And so I was still in the process of trying to see if there were 2014 movies I had missed that deserved to be make the list. Uh, This film uh, clocks in at about an hour and a half. It's a fairly quick watch. And my synopsis is a soccer team that has never scored a goal wants to compete in the World Cup. With a 76 out of 100, its next goal 
Wins, directed by Mike Brett and Steve Jameson. And what this movie really is, uh, far from what you would typically expect from a sports movie, even a sports documentary, as many of them follow a similar formula, down and out team, new coach, new whatever, new something, uh, sparks energy into them, and they ultimately succeed and win whatever competition, deal, I don't know, bet that they have going. Next Goal Wins is pretty much the real-life epitome of this trope, right? So, uh, Next Goal Wins um, follows... Uh, let me make sure I have the... Uh, so, it's, it follows the American Samoa soccer team, football team, uh, which has never scored a goal in a single World Cup qualifying match. I believe I have that uh, criteria correct. Not once. Uh, not only that, but they have a notorious um, record held, unfor un uh, unfortunately. Um, and uh, it, it was a game that happened back in 2002. Um, it, between American Samoa and Australia, which ended with a score of 31 to nil. Uh, and more, more, more so than that, um, one player on the Australian team, Archie Thompson, scored 13 of the 31 goals by himself. Uh, and in the same match, uh, another Australian, David Zadrilic, scored eight goals. So between the two of them, they had 21 of the 31 goals. Uh, so American Samoa, kind of a laughing stock in the football world for that exact reason. Um, not only were they scoreless, but they were winless. They had never had a tie, as far as I'm aware. They never showed any competency that you could point to. Uh, and this documentary is about um, the... They bring in a new coach, uh, who I believe is Thomas Rongen. Yes, uh, Thomas Rongen, who is not American Samoan, but uh, is is uh, I don't remember. He's not American. He's some European. Thomas Rongen. 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 Is Dutch. He's Dutch. Used former player. Yes, and then he he spent a lot of time playing in the states here, uh, but then ultimately he wound up teaching and and coaching the American Samoa team. And so we get a lot of moments with him with the team. Uh, you really get to see what he has to deal with and and the quality of the players that he's working with. And and it's it's early in the movie. It is very apparent how a team like this could lose 31 to nil and it, it it ultimately plays so much better than the narrative version of what this movie would be because the documentary crew is it, it just it fits so much better with with shooting sports i think anybody who's watched a sports movie that's fiction or, or narrative-based, that's not a documentary, knows that um, there are a lot of sports that if you don't shoot them like 
you watch them on TV, it's easy to pretend and, and, and adjust what you're seeing and make it not seem real to anyone who understands that sport. Uh, soccer, this happens a lot. Tennis is very, very poor uh, at this. Um, Battle of the Sexes did it pretty fairly well, but like movies like Wimbledon do very bad jobs of, of really making you feel like, if you are a tennis player, making you feel like these people are actually playing tennis. Not very good. Um, plenty of basketball movies have this issue. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a very problematic situation because, you know, when you're filming these active and, and action-packed things, sometimes you need to be up close, you want to see the person's face, and obviously if you're, like, looking at someone's face, then there's a camera right in front of them, and then there's a camera on the field or the court or whatever the thing it is they're playing on, and I don't, it just, it throws everything out of whack. So what I loved about this was that the actual scenes of them playing are... are, are they, they look great. Like, they look so much better than any movie I've ever seen uh, portray soccer or football. I'm trying to say football, not soccer. It's, it's, a, it's, an, it's an American thing. And what, what comes from it is you really, like, you don't need to be flashy and, and you know, show all these super quick cuts and things like that. Just watch them play. And if you understand football, then you can tell, you know, that they're making mistakes, uh, that the other team is getting the best of them, that they're losing the ball, that they can't control the ball, that they don't know where they're supposed to be at every point in time, that there's too many of them in a small condensed area. And there's all these different things and nuances and um, problems with the team that you get to actually see because of how it's filmed. And then when you cut away from the game, you know, you get to go back to the coach talking to them and explaining to them, like, this is what you did wrong. This is what you did wrong. How are we ever going to win? How are we ever going to score if you're doing this, 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 this? And I, I just thought it was a fantastic, inspirational sports movie. You know, it, it's, it's, more, it's more impressive than any of the dramatic versions of these types of movies. Glory Road for basketball or, or you know, um, like Remember the Titans and Friday Night Lights, like, some for, they're, they're on some scale of quote-unquote good in, in their own rights, but Next Goal Wins is probably exactly what you want in a sort of underdog sports movie. That's it. That's exactly what you want. And it may not have, like, the character uh, uh, that the the movie versions uh, have, but it has the story, and it's not fake, it's not dramatized, it's not elevated to any level that it wasn't supposed to be at. It's exactly as it's presented, and you get the sense on these guys' faces when they're t when you're talking to them, they're pissed that they're only really known for being this laughing stock. They're frustrated. They're they're hungry for a win just for a goal like what they would what they would sell and give away for a goal is is everything and that comes through and you you feel that more than an actor could have given it to you so i really enjoyed this documentary uh fantastic look at this 
underdog trope in sports movies from a real perspective and uh, at at 90 minutes it's totally totally worth watching and, and checking out because it's it's a good it's a good time it's a feel good good time sort of sort of documentary i liked it so that's next goal wins from 2014 moving up to my number 9 movie of may uh, I watched this one on May 14th, so about halfway through the month. Uh, it's over two and a half hours long. This is this is a, uh, the longest film on the list, and it is, um, yeah, it's it's a it's a rough one for that reason. Uh, it's from 1973, and my brief summary is: a couple endures turbulent times in their marriage. I gave this one a 77, it has an 88 on Rotten Tomatoes, and that is Ingmar Bergman's Scenes from a Marriage. So, a little bit about Scenes from a Marriage. It was originally crafted as a TV miniseries. It's like four episode miniseries. Um, And it chronicles this marriage between... Uh, Liv Ullman's character, Marianne, and Erland Josephson's Johan. Johan. And uh, six, six episodes. I think I said four. It's six episodes. So at 162 minutes, thereabouts, uh, it ends up being like 35 minutes an episode, plus or minus. And each section is kind of contained to itself. Uh, you can definitely, you know, I definitely noticed while watching it as a film that there were definite distinctions between each segment. Um, you know, the issues from the first segment, while not invisible in the last segment, are definitely uh, pushed to the side in favor of whatever the sixth segment's um, focus is. And so that kind of uh, you know, it, it's it's a little rocky in that sense. It's not like one narrative thread throughout the whole film. It's just a couple who have some pretty rough times and rough goes of it as, as a married couple. And these are kind of six moments in their marriage that are worth focusing on and poking at and, and prodding. Uh, I, I loved the the performances. Uh, Ullman and Josephson are are fantastic um, supporting performances from B.B. Anderson, who I really love, uh, Gunnel Lindblom, and oh man, Jan Malmsjö, maybe M A L M S J with an umlaut. Uh, I mean, the cast is great. Bergman's direction is is fantastic as always, but uh, he's not really looking to to impress you with this film. I think he realizes the sort of intimate nature and is able to focus and quiet down the camera, if that makes sense. Uh, you know, everything in this movie is. Um, sort of reminiscent of something Richard Linklater would later do to great effect. And personally, I think Linklater achieves greater success, uh, you know, in the Before series with with uh, Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy. But this is clearly, 
you know, it, I would be shocked if I to find out that like Linklater had never seen scenes from marriage or hadn't used it as inspiration. Uh, you know, because this is pretty much exactly what that is. It's it's a, a sequence of vignettes that combine to form this representation of a couple's marriage. And uh, at the start of the film, they've been together for 10 years. Um, and they are, it's turbulent, it's, it's bumpy, it's, it's not perfect, it's never perfect. Um, they, they talk about splitting up and divorce, you know, they both flirt with affairs, and they each have this different viewpoint on where they should be and where they are and, and where they've been, and all of it kind of culminates, you know, it's beautifully written, and Bergman does the best, a great job of just letting the writing kind of speak for itself, and uh, it's, it's, it's a tough one, it, it really is, and they, they, kind of, the whole film is kind of about them trying to figure out what they actually should be to each other, um, you know, whether or not being married is the right decision for the two of them, whether they should be friends, whether they should never speak again, you know, it, it's, it's a tough, tough conversation to have, you know, I've known people, uh, who have been my friends, who I think, you know, man, there's elements of friendship that I think I have with this person, and then there's other aspects of our friendship that I, I just don't get, and I don't think, I don't want, and I, I don't, I, I feel sort of anchored to this person, despite the fact that a large portion of the relationship between the two of us is toxic, or, you know, or, or kind of maybe even like, you know, you, 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 you kind of watch this movie and if you're in a relationship, you have to wonder, uh, you know, if 10 years down the line, you're going to feel the exact same way that you do now, or if you're going to look back and wonder, you know, how you could have thought you felt a different way, wonder uh, if things are trending downward, trending upward, if you are coming to the realization in uh, you know, after 10 years, that, like, how, th that, that is the most f frightening thing to me, one of the most frightening things to me, if, is if you realize 10 years into your marriage that it's bad, and that's the kind of thing, like, how do you not see that sooner, what, what are you, you know, are you deluding yourself, are you you being deluded? Are you con trying to convince yourself that things are good when they're not? Is there some other external influence acting upon you and acting upon this relationship you have with this other person? That's a scary, scary thought. Uh, because if you have the thought that you want to spend 10 more years with one person, I mean, you there's a good reason for it. You're in. You love that person. You you care about them. You you're devoted to them, and to look back in ten years and wonder how things got that to the point where they are, and and if especially if they're not good anymore, like 
what happened? How could we go from being so perfect and so great and so understanding to being so violent and so abusive to each other, you know, or, or how are we able to sleep in the same room, let alone bed? It's, it's, it's tough. And I think Scenes from Marriage does a great job of sort of laying out this, this phenomenon and working towards an answer. And I think that's, that's the point. That's, that's what we're getting to and trying to figure out the answer, trying to find the answer to these questions. And, uh, Bergman, if he is good at one thing, he is great at proposing questions and working towards the answers of them. That's pretty much all of his films. And that's why he's really good. So number nine for me, scenes from a marriage with a 77. Number eight, number eight, another oldie, but goodie. Uh, this is a film called, uh, peeping Tom. I saw this May 1st, first month, first day of May. Uh, it's a 1960 film directed by Michael Powell, uh, who also directed the red shoes and black narcissus, uh, and the thief of Baghdad that I've seen among many others. It stars uh, Carlines Bohm, Moira Shearer, Anna Massey, Maxine Audley, and others. Uh, it's about 100 minutes long, and my brief summary is a lonely cameraman is working on a documentary about fear. I gave this one an 80. It has a 96% on Rotten Tomatoes. So this film is kind of mired in controversy, it's been, it's talked about a lot. You know, I heard about this film a few years before finally getting to see it. And I was taken by the subject matter. Uh, you know, it's called Peeping Tom. It's about a guy who's a voyeur. And it's, it's a really rough movie. It's, um... You know, it's gone through a lot of periods of censorship... Uh, it's got a lot of problems that critics back at the time were really not happy with, you know, that everyone was calling it disgusting and, and, um, you know, quoted as having called it beastly. Uh, it's, it's a really difficult movie to watch, uh, even now, you know, 50, almost 60 years later, and this is still a very influential and, tough movie to get through the general plot uh, you know it's this guy he works as a cameraman on a film set and in his meantime in his downtime he's working on a documentary uh, about trying to capture fear and on the on its surface you know that doesn't seem too awful you know fear is is a an emotion that everyone feels at one point or another, and the notion of capturing it on film, and, and, you know, we've seen plenty of movies that are scary, and the characters in them are afraid or terrified, and, like, that's not horrible, that's not awful, it's it's meant to affect us, it's meant to uh, impact us in a specific way. Uh, where, where the problems kind of arise is through the fact that uh, our, our boy here, 
Mark Lewis, Carlyne's Bohm, is the one inducing the fear. Uh, so, as I mentioned, it's a documentary that he's making. So he is the one who is creating the fear in these other people and also filming them. And it's it's far more than that. You know, it, it's it's a lot more than just sort of, you know, stalking uh, people and, and creating fear within them. You know, it, it's about the way he goes it. It's a, it goes about it. It's about the sort of nonchalance he has with well-being and, and everyone and, and the health of these other people and the lack of, of human empathy that he feels and, and how easy it is for him to do these things, you know, especially when you get to the end of this movie and, and it really does go places. It goes a lot of places. And it's, it's really, really, it's, it's a, it's, it's rough. It, it earns its reputation. Uh, maybe it's not quite as impactful to audiences now as it was 60 years ago. That's definitely for sure. Uh, so many movies have come out in the past and, 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 you know, we have so many more directors now that are doing things that are coming close to, and, and even in some cases surpassing what Peeping Tom uh, sort of maybe began. I, I, I don't know if this was the first movie to really try to do something like this. You know, Lars von Trier is definitely a director that comes to mind thinking about Peeping Tom. Uh, but this is a, a real st struggle of a movie. Um, it, it feels a lot, a lot longer than it really is. And it's, it's, it, that's, I don't know. I don't know how much more I can say about it. It's, it's really tough to watch, but it is a solid, well-made film, uh, from Michael Powell, who, you know, it's, fa the, the idea, like, filming someone filming is such a fascinating concept, and, uh, you know, then this this movie really plays with those those elements in, a, in an interesting way. So if you haven't seen it, test it out. Uh, you know, I don't feel comfortable, like, saying everyone should watch this because there's going to be a lot of people that are less than pleased. So test it out. Like, watch a trailer or, or a, a scene maybe on YouTube if, if you're not 100% sure that you're willing to devote almost, you know, an hour and a half, 100 minutes to this thing. But, so that's Peeping Tom. <laughs> My number eight within a score of 80. My number seven this month, this past month, is the only animated film to make the list. It's also the only short film to make the list, clocking in at only five minutes. Watch this one May 1st as well. It's a 2014 film, so part of that cycle of 2014 films I watched. My brief summary, a man is hired to catalog the history of the human race. I believe you can find this on YouTube. If not YouTube, then probably Vimeo. I forget where I watched it. I gave it an 81, so just one point above Peeping Tom. And uh, my synopsis is pretty much it. Uh, you know, if you look at my review on Letterboxd, it just says, holy shit, what a brilliant film. And this is such an incredible concept. So this guy, 
this schlubby looking guy on the poster of the film uh, is a man who was tasked with spending, I forget how many years he's given in the movie, but like 30 years or so, 20 to 30 years. And all he's tasked to do is to determine what information across the entire history, past, present, of every single thing, with no exception. And what what of all of that should be kept in a capsule for the remains of all time? Okay? Fairly, I mean, it's an insane concept, but it's fairly straightforward. If you were tasked with sharing a record of humanity with a species or a thing or any or something that never saw humans that never saw what life was like for us never saw us out in their normal daily activities how many what would you parse through going all the way back to the first man what would you parse through and keep because you can't keep everything there's no way there's just too much information but, but you have to make decisions. Uh, one of the key decisions that is made in this movie is like about music. And you, you think like, okay, well, if you're gonna choose, if you're just honing in on music, just music, right? How many artists do you think you can represent in the history of humankind? You know, is Katy Perry going to make the list? I doubt it. Eminem? Maybe, but again, I doubt it. The Beatles? Uh, probably, but not for sure. Like, you, you can't just put a song from everybody. You can't just, you, you probably can't even put a song from every genre, let alone every artist. Uh, you know, how how slim and how much fat do you have to trim off before you're ultimately trimming off perfect, perfect prime rib from this history? And that's just music. Inventors, uh, you know, politicians, activists, athletes, astronauts, artists, writers, movie stars just celebrities in general people places things man-made architecture naturally occurring wonders of the world rivers oceans mountains like as soon as you really start to think about this and you really start to formulate some sort of an an approach you realize just how difficult a task this would be. You know, the Declaration of Independence. Does that make it? All of it? Some of it? The Gettysburg Address? Can you even afford to put every single U.S. president? What about other countries? England, Japan, Russia, Australia, New Zealand, Africa, Europe, Antarctica, animals. Can we fit all the animals in? Is it as big? Is it big enough? I, I don't know. 
it's 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 a fascinating concept. The film's only five minutes long, and it never and it totally feels like it does the subject justice. It's a very very strenuous f- short film because it makes you it can make you very angry. You know, it's it's you know each one of us feels a different type of way about everything, right? You assign two people to make the same compilation of human existence and their history, and you end up with two radically different results. And this guy, this poor guy, you know, you're tasked with being as objective as possible, you know, is Tanya Harding going to make it? Is she even going to be mentioned? Monica Lewinsky? Trump? Obama? Martin Luther King Jr.? Lincoln? Washington? Edison? Picasso? I don't know. <laughs> you know, like how... How could you possibly know if you haven't tried to do it? And, and who could ever possibly undertake something like this? The amount of time it would take to even uh, like to go through all of the history from right now, by the time you've finished going through everything that happened up to you know June fifteenth, two thousand eighteen, there you know you're like five years in the future now. You know we could have a different president. You know we could have had nuclear war. We could have had ex- animal extinctions, global storms, uh, you know genocides assassinations, murders, we could have had the cure for cancer. You know, so many things can change in five years. And it takes so much time to research everything. Like, everything. Like, think about reading the entire Encyclopedia Encyclopedia Britannica, but, like, that, on that scale, but, like, one of those for every year, basically. And then some, right? And then some. Like, how? just how much information is on the internet? It's it's so overwhelming and such a good film. I really encourage you, of any of the top ten movies this month, check this out. It's super easy. It's on YouTube. You'll find it. It's fast. It's, it's incredibly, incredibly important. So that's Yearbook. Um, I don't even know if I said the title already. Well, anyway, it's called Yearbook. It's a short animated film. It's amazing. Gave it an 81. Moving on to my number six this month, another foreign language film. Uh, this one I watched May 18th. Uh, it's about two hours long. It's a 2013 film. Um, so this one I had already trans- transitioned from the 2014 Circle Film Awards at this point, about halfway through the month, to the 2013 awards. Still working through those, but I'm about to shift down to 2012 pretty soon. Um, anyway, this film from 2013, summary, a young girl is the victim of a gruesome rape. Gave this one in 82, and the film is called Hope. Uh, it's directed by Lee Jun-ik, and stars Sol Kyung-gu, Um Ji-won, and Lee Ri, among others. Uh, it's the only film of his that I've seen, Lee Jun-ik's. Films. Uh, he is a it's a South Korean film, and uh, yeah, so it it 
This is this is this is a rough one too. This is a real tough movie. Uh, it, it's it's a difficult watch. So to kind of expand on what's happening, young couple and their eight-year-old daughter, So Wan, uh, she narrowly survives a brutal sexual assault, and uh, the ensuing film is about her attempts to uh, recover as well as the parents' attempts to cope with what they might believe to be their own problems and, and lack of presence to, to save her, what, uh, you know, and, and, and so much more. You know, what, what can possibly go through your mind when something like this happens to your daughter? <coughs> Excuse me. It's, it's, you know, you can't even comprehend and it's it's not easy right it's nothing about this is easy and i credit these parents so much in this movie they they go through the ringer uh and and they weren't even the ones abused um one of the key things i remember about this movie uh is that the father um his initial attempts to console and care for his daughter are rebuffed and rebuked because she's upset she's grieving and she has no she can't bring herself to even look at him because he's an older male and that's uh, that's that's heartbreaking I mean, it makes sense. It makes total sense, and that's the most frustrating part. And you can see it on his face when it he he realizes what's going on, and it just it's it's crushing. You know, your your eight year old daughter can't look at you, doesn't want you to be in the same room as her. Like, what do you do? How can you rectify that? How can you help her? How can you just sit around and do nothing? How can you let yourself do that? Even if you can even if you can tell yourself that by not doing anything, you are doing what she wants, that you're by staying away, that is what she wants. How can you be okay with that? It's it's a it's a really sad movie, uh, you know. I I definitely cried a few times while watching it. It it really it's it's really difficult. It's it's far more difficult to watch from. It was far more. You know, I was much more upset by this than I was by like Peeping Tom or anything. It it was. You know, it's a film that reminds me of um, a lot of the work from Asghar Farhadi. You know, Farhadi has been a fantastic director of... He's an Iranian director. He's made a lot of great movies that deal with these personal dramas, these, these uh, you know, interpersonal relationships and dynamics. Uh, the best of them, in my opinion, is called A Separation. 
And now, I don't think hope is as good as a separation, but I think that uh, Lee Jun-ik has done a fantastic job here of coming to that same place, making his, you know, taking a different route, but but using the same things and, and the same approaches that Farhadi does in, in order to make this a personal and gripping drama that whether you have kids or not, whether you have ever been a victim of sexual assault or not, whether you know someone who's been a victim of sexual assault or not, you cannot help but feel connected to this family. And not just one of them, all of them. The mother, the father, and the daughter. It's all about their fam- the fam- that family. And it's... You know, and the title, the title, Hope, is both frustrating and relieving. You know, it's, it's kind of, you know, most of the movie you just think of it and you're like, this movie's called Hope and it's so darkly tragic and it's such a painful thing to watch and experience and yet all you can think about is like, all right, you're telling me how, I, how I'm supposed to feel, and I'm trying, but it's so difficult. It's so difficult. Uh, hope. I gave it an 82. Um, it will show up in my 2013 Circle of Film Awards. Um, but, uh, yeah. It was my sixth highest rated movie this, this month. Hope. It's really good. It's really good. Okay, uh, top five. So number five now. We jump up from an 82 to an 85 for this film. It was seen May 12th, 2018. Uh, It's 91 minutes long, so an hour and a half. It's from 1968. It's in a foreign language. And this one is directed by Francois Truffaut. And it is actually part of a series of films he did, uh, starring Jean-Pierre Lioud as Antoine Doinel. Doinel? Antoine Doinel? 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 And this one is called Stolen Kisses. Stolen Kisses. Uh, So if you've seen the other films in this trilogy and, and recurring character... Uh, you've probably have seen 400, The 400 Blows. That is the first film when uh, Antoine is 14 years old. Uh, there was a short film called Antoine and Colette that appears next uh, when Antoine is 17. And then in Stolen Kisses, he's now a little, little more mature, uh, Antoine's character. And at the start of the film, he has returned to civilian life after a dishonorable discharge from the military. So my brief synopsis is a poor man tries and fails at multiple jobs. That's pretty much what happens when he starts the film. You know, he's trying to do all these things, and he's not really that good at any of them. And what's nice about this movie, compared to some of the others we've been talking about, is that it's not really that dramatic. It's not really that um, difficult to watch. It's... 
more of a rom-com than anything you know it's uh you know i love i think truffaut is a fantastic director i think his him you know as one of the greatest directors of all time i think that's totally a worthy um moniker to attribute stolen kisses is my favorite of his films uh to date now i haven't seen the vast majority of them but of the four films of his i have seen uh, i like stolen kisses the most and so ultimately this film shows depicts antoine as he ends up finding himself uh, finding himself in this quote-unquote difficult position where there are two women whose affections he has and wants and he's kind of got to choose between them that's pretty much it everything else is gravy it's you know brilliant Truffaut at his best uh just constantly churning out hilarious circumstances and brilliant dialogue and pretty much everything he's capable of just in more of a rom-com situation and it's it, it works you know i i my my review uh you know on letterboxd i say silly truffaut is my favorite truffaut and that is totally true you know this and day for night are, are both two of his movies that i really enjoyed and that take a very light approach to the films that he's making. And he is certainly more than capable of darker things and darker subject matter. But he is uh, he's really good with this, this comedy stuff, man. I, I just... He just kind of... this he, he shows Antoine just bumbling his way from one thing to the next you know he's a security guard and then he's a private detective and you know he he does all these different odd jobs and none of them are really great and uh, none of them really fit with who he is and it's you know it's kind of like the equivalent of of sort of drifting through college and not really knowing what you want to major in and just you know, oh, well, I'm going to take a class in this next semester. Oh, now I'm going to go try this. Oh, I heard this is interesting. I'm going to go try this. And none of them really... Shh. And none of them really mesh well with what you want. And then ultimately, at the end of the day, you might real might find out that maybe this college doesn't offer a thing that you're interested in. And that's where the relationships between Antoine and Fabien and Antoine and Christine come into play. So uh, it's my favorite Truffaut so far and uh, gives me great hope for the future of watching Truffaut movies. So that's Stolen Kisses, my number five this month uh, with a rating of 85. Moving on to number four. It would not be a top 10 month list uh, without a film from Akira Kurosawa on it. I believe every month I've done this, I've had a Kurosawa film on the list, at least one. Uh, This month will be no different, as my number four is from Akira Kurosawa. It's a 1952 film, the oldest film on this top 10 list. It's two hours and 20 minutes long, and I saw it May 10th of this month, of this past month. My brief summary, a bureaucrat is diagnosed with cancer 
and tries to find meaning in life. It's rated an 85 with a 100% on Rotten Tomatoes, so uh, same rating as Stolen Kisses, but a slightly higher Rotten Tomato score for the tiebreaker. Um, it stars Takashi Shimura, who's a frequent collaborator with Kurosawa, and the film is called Ikiru. And uh, so in terms of like Kurosawa films, it um, it's my fifth favorite Kurosawa film so far of the 11 I've seen. Uh, but it is still an exceptional piece of film. It, it's it's Takashi Shimura uh, stars plays Kanji Watanabe. He is kind of this desk clerk, desk jockey person who just kind of sits and goes through life, and everything kind of just passes, and it's all monotonous, and it's all the same, and just happens again and again and again, day in, day out, up and up and up and down and up and down. You know, it's always the same, routine. It's very routine. And so when he finally learns fairly early in the film that he has been diagnosed with cancer and that, uh, you know, maybe his life is coming to an end quicker than he expected it to be, uh, he has to um, reconcile that with himself, you know. And so we've seen a lot of films. There have been a ton of films uh, with with um, cancer as one of the main elements. I'm looking at things like Fifty Fifty, um, Film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool, Deadpool, uh, Me and Earl and the Dying Girl, The Fault in Our Stars, Beginners. Uh, so many films have have used cancer in one way or another uh, to to enhance or or. Um, not an, I don't know, just, just as a, as a device, right? It's a very easy disease to go to, uh, when you need something devastating. And it's a very effective one because there's no real cure. And almost everyone knows someone who has had one type of cancer or another at some point. And it's it's a testament to Kurosawa that this film manages to be like none of the films that I just mentioned. It's it's not like any of them. Uh, it, it's it's so so much more than that. And I don't know if it was it probably wasn't the first movie that like really hinged on cancer, but this is a very straightforward movie. Uh, it, it's brutal. And it puts us in the mindset of a cancer-diagnosed person better than any of these other films. And I, you know, fifty. I love Fifty Fifty. I think it's incredible. I love Joseph Gordon-Levitt in it. He's not Takashi Shimura, and the, he, you know, he, he, Fifty Fifty was not directed by Akira Kurosawa. This is movie. I mentioned it's like two hours and twenty minutes long. Uh, it's a very um, languishing film, and it, it's it's a film that takes its time. And of all the films from Kurosawa that I've seen, it does the best job of entrenching you into the mind of its main character, because it's really only about one person. You know, it, it's it's just 
every minute of this film, we get closer and closer to being immersed in 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 Kanji Watanabe and who he is. And of course, I mean, unfortunately, like that's also my biggest critique is that the film is very slow. But the the film has so much to say, and and, and so much to do. Uh, you know, it's obviously a big you know death, and and the and the idea behind death and and life is a, clearly a huge huge theme throughout the film. Uh, you know, the title is can be translated to mean to live. Uh, but Watanabe is is kind of an interesting guy. You know, he he's uh, throughout the film he is frustrated by the people around him um particularly the bureaucrats in that work with him uh he you know and his family doesn't really seem to care about him when they find out what's happened they feel you know he realizes that they're more focused on you know their inheritance that's coming when he he kicks the bucket um and he he looks around at his coworkers and they're really not doing anything. They they just constantly put off work and they're you know there's this great oh there's this great sequence where it just it's just like a barrage of bureaucrats and and workers at at the at the building who are just constantly referring a caller to the next person the next person the next person the next person the next person. The next person. And it's it's brilliant. It's it's so brilliant. I, I love it. And so it's just just getting to know this character and and seeing him as he goes through. He 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 understands the the diagnosis. He connects with it. He is on board. He says he's you know he's like all right. I'm I'm. This is this is the future. You know I only have so long to live. What does that mean? What does that mean? And so he's going through all these stages, all these steps. And, you know, he ends up going to a nightclub and trying to kind of figure out, like, is this living? You know, all these people that go out every night, is this what worthwhile? Is this something that I should be doing? Is this something I've missed out on? And, you know, we get a fantastic scene where he's uh, actually... or. Shimura actually sings, uh, and, and just like watching the tears roll down his face at the same time. It's it's man, it's really it's affecting. It's very affecting. Uh, he then meets a younger woman who he becomes kind of not not taken by, but more so. Uh, uh, curious about, um, you know, and, and try, he tries to spend time with her and, and see if, you know, maybe she can help kind of bring him to an understanding of life and, and living. And, you know, he, he's trying to determine what life is, you know, it's basic question as old as, as life itself is what is the meaning of life? And, I think you have to watch the movie, but I think Kurosawa does a great job of 
<coughs> um, determining what a decent answer to that question is. Uh, you know, much like Bergman in, in Scenes from a Marriage, uh, Kurosawa is a fantastic asker and answerer of questions. And Ikiru, Ikiru is one of the best variations and, and representations of that. So I'm a huge fan of Kurosawa, as has become apparent. Uh, Ikiru is just another brilliant notch on his belt. And I, I urge you to... It's, it's slow. It really is slow. But test it out. You know, Maybe don't make it your first Kurosawa, but if you've seen a few of them and you haven't seen Ikiru... It's really good. I really think you should should look at it. It's it's a fantastic film. So that's Ikiru. My number four with a rating of 85. Let's move on to film number three from May. This film is another foreign language feature. Uh, it, I watched it May 12th, same day as Stolen Kisses. Uh, <coughs> it's from 2002. It is 104 minutes long, so reasonable relative to things like Ikiru and Scenes from a Marriage. I gave it a 90. We have taken a big jump up to 90 with this movie. Uh, it has a 92% on Rotten Tomatoes. And that is the Pedro Almodovar film, Talk to Her. Uh, if you've never heard of this movie, you don't know what it is. Uh, my brief summary is two men begin friendship a friendship, begin a friendship, as they care for two women in comas. Uh, it's a... At times, and, and especially when you just hear like the synopsis, it can kind of be a rough watch, because much of the drama and, and um, much of what you're seeing is two men converse and talk about women who are unconscious and you know me in 2002 it probably wasn't as much of an issue and probably didn't really come to the forefront of critics at the time but now given the change in climate uh, it is a bit more of an odd circumstance and given what happens in the film it can really be quite troubling uh, that being said, uh, it's a film that, <clears throat> uh, for me, is my favorite uh, Almodovar film. Uh, Volver was previously my favorite of his, but uh, Talk to Her has surpassed it. And the biggest reason why is the storytelling. Uh, it's not all pr in the present where the two women are unconscious and in comas. It's interwoven with flashbacks uh you know it's it's brilliantly written brilliantly directed um some incredible performances uh and what i like a lot and and perhaps most about the film is that things don't just get tied up at the end um unlike a lot of films it's not we have an issue we struggle to solve the issue and then we figure it out and solve it by the end of the movie, and everything's hunky-dory. Uh, this movie prevent, presents a lot of questions and really struggles to 
present a reasonable uh, uh, finality to to the circumstances. You know, things resolve naturally, not like a movie that often does. Uh, there's no neat and tidy bow at the end of this, just because that there, there isn't always, and oftentimes there isn't. There's a lot going on in this movie. I'm not going to get into everything that's involved. Um, I will say that for me, uh, Javier Camara, who plays the character Benino, uh, one of the men uh, who is not in a coma, uh, his character's progression and, and performance is, is v- haunting. Um, just the way that his character is built up and ultimately revealed and I, I suppose you could say is is really distressing um, there's a lot of imagery used in the movie that represents one thing and shows another and it's it's a really like a lot of the movies on this list it's at times tough to watch it's it's not quite it's not always tough to watch there's plenty of brevity and and um, humor spread throughout but it is certainly uh, at times somewhat of a transgression and you know it, it it pushes the envelope and I don't know I mean it's it's up to you to decide if, if it's pushed in the wrong direction uh, I think it's it's um, I think it's quite brilliant and I think it's it's a very important commentary but it's it's not for everyone, as as all films are, I think. Um, but I love Talk to Her. I think it's a great movie. If you like Amadovar, if you've you know if you've seen Volver, if you've liked uh, The Skin I Live In, All About My Mother, uh, etc. etc. Uh, you probably already know Talk to Her. But if you don't, if you haven't seen it, um, check it out. It's it's really good. I won't say too much more about it. I don't want to like get into more details of it just just check it out make your own decision so that's my number three this month from 2002 directed by pedro almodovar talk to her with a rating of 90 moving on to my number two it's a film from 2003 uh it's 103 minutes long it's about the same length as talk to her i saw it may 18th same day as hope uh, it is a 2003 film directed by Kim Ki-duk, who has also directed such films as Three Iron, Mobius, and Pieta. Uh, this is the only, however, the film, this film is the only one I've seen of his, and that's Spring, Summer, Fall, Winter, and Spring. My summary, a boy is raised by a Buddhist monk. Very straightforward. I gave it a 91. Is a 94% on Rotten Tomatoes. And uh, I had no idea what this movie was. Uh, I, and this is a title I had heard many times, but I, I didn't really know what was going to happen. I didn't, I didn't know anything about the movie. And actually, um, Cody Clark, who I had on, who I'd interviewed, uh, you know, I was talking to him about it on Twitter, and our, we were talking about Hope, I think, and then he mentioned Kim Ki-duk, and I, I brought up that you know I'd never seen any of his movies, so 
that night I watched Spring, Summer, Fall, Winter, and Spring. And man, what a film. So it's broken up into five parts. Spring, Summer, Fall, Winter, and Spring. Uh, but it doesn't take place over one and a quarter years. It's broken up into probably like 80, 60 to 70 years of time through from the first to the last part. And we track this young boy who in the first spring, the beginning of the movie, is living with an older monk who is teaching him and training him to become a monk. And as the seasons and years pass by, he grows up, things change, um, and life progresses. And the movie goes places. Uh, you know, it, from the first part, you know, it seemed very comforting. It felt very warm. And and as e and even in the second part, in, in summer, I was also, you know, I was very... I felt a part of this movie from during spring and summer. And then when we get to fall, things take a turn. <coughs> uh, fall is very, very different and really sets you down a path that you're not expecting. And uh, winter only, uh, only elevates that feeling. Uh, but then when we come back to spring again, it's, it's like warmth has flowed back in and, you know, I said in my review on Letterboxd, uh, it, it's the depiction of this, the way this film presents life and living is almost unparalleled. Um, I say, quote, a gorgeous film that earns its place as one of the greatest depictions of life for all time. Uh, the cinematography the, just the, the, the shots of this movie are, are gorgeous to look at. They're, they're absolutely beautiful. And the lesson and, and the in, in compar in, in, incomparable ideas and, and life that are, are presented in the film are something to behold. Uh, you know, you have to watch it. You know, just the nature of the structure of this film... You know, I don't, I'm not going to say anything about what happens after summer. Um, in spring, there's a br brilliant sequence where the young boy, training to be a monk, um, has this uh, penchant for tying rocks to creatures and watching them struggle and laughing about it. I'm sure... You know, analogous to burning ants with a magnifying glass or, you know, pouring salt on a slug and, you know, things like that. Um, a lot of people, um, boys especially, have done something to that effect when they were younger. And this guy's no different. You know, he, he did it too. So, uh, what turns that into brilliant, actually, is that we notice that the adult old monk who's teaching him observes all of these things. Uh, I think he does it he ties the rock to a snake and a frog and a fish, uh, I believe. And this is so fantastic. This is easily like <laughs> the funniest part of the movie. Maybe the best. I'm not 100% sure about that part. So that night, the old monk gets a big rock a big rock slab, and ties it to the boy's back while he's sleeping. 
the boy wakes up and kind of like stumbles out of the house and um, stands next to the monk and kind of complains like there's a rock tied to me uh, you know and the guy's like is it does it hurt is it, is it impeding your your way of way of living the boy's like yes and he's and the old monk tells him all right, all right look I'm not going to take it off until you go find all of the creatures that you tied rocks to and untie them. And if any of them are dead, I'm never going to, you know, you, you'll you never get that rock off. And so we watch this boy all by himself get into a small boat, paddle over to the shore to go search for these creatures. It's like, he's like eight years old or something like that. He is very young. This rock probably weighs solid 20, 25 pounds on his back. It's, it's, it starts out really funny, but the further it progresses, it gets real serious. You know, you're watching him climb up this hill, and the offsetting weight of the rock is threatening to, like, send him tumbling back down into the water. And if he fell into the water, you know, he'd, he'd drown. He just, you know, you would. And meanwhile, the old monk is, like, back on the house in the middle of this lake, uh, far from a place where he would be easily able to help the young the boy. So it's it's kind of treacherous. It's kind of scary for that for that split few minutes there. Um, but yeah, it, it's a beautiful movie. It looks great. It, it has fantastic acting, and it presents life. It's just about life in the best way possible. <clears throat> So that's spring, summer, fall, winter, and spring. My number two movie of the year, not of the year, of of the month, uh, with a rating of 91. My number one film that I saw in May, repeat or otherwise, is a 1977 film from a director I'm generally not super into. Uh, He's made eight movies that I've seen so far. And a handful of them I, I really enjoy. I think they're quite good. But none of them has come close to affecting me the way this film did. Uh, so 1977, I watched it <clears throat> May 16th. It's about two hours long. My summary, two women share a bizarre relationship. It's got a 96% on Rotten Tomatoes, and I gave it a 90 So this movie is in my top 300, and what's more, it is my 123rd highest rated film of all time, right behind Wild Tales, right ahead of The Hunt for Red October. This is directed by Robert Altman, starring Shelley Duvall and Sissy Spacek. My summary, two women share a bizarre relationship, and it's called Three Women. Uh, So Three Women actually kind of share a bizarre relationship, although the majority of the film is about two specific women, Shelley Duvall and Sissy Spacek's characters. And uh, if you haven't heard about it, um, watch it. That's it. That's all I'm going to say. If you have heard about it, if you know what it is, if you've seen it even, uh, I think it is brilliant. And, you know, I, I don't... I don't understand, you know, I really don't understand 
how it can be so good coming from Robert Altman. Because previous prior to this, my favorite film of his was McCabe and Mrs. Miller, which I think is good, but I gave it a 79. So this is a full, like, two tiers above McCabe and Mrs. Miller for me. Uh, and having recently watched Nashville... I don't like Nashville at all. I don't think it's good. I've tr- I have very many problems with Nashville. I have very, very, very few problems with Three Women, if any. Um, in particular, Sissy Spacek and and Shelley Duvall give incredible performances as these kind of teenagers working uh, initially at a spa, and um, the film kind of begins and. Sissy Spacek is sort of the focus of it, and she kind of gets attached to Shelley Duvall's character. And both of these women are characterized very intentionally, uh, very, very much straight, very straightforward. And as the film progresses, uh, their characterizations start to change, and they start to become different people. Except they're not different people; they're kind of starting to take on each other's attributes um, which gets even more convoluted and more interesting and more fascinating when there's a third woman involved into this relationship into this uh, situation and watching these two characters sort of ebb and flow against each other is brilliant oh my goodness it's it's I love it so much. I love watching the the dynamics between Spacek and Duvall. I think that in and of itself is worth the price of admission. Everything else on top of that is gravy, and it's fantastic. The the final moments of this movie are just perfect. Uh, Just so, 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 so perfect to me. Uh, And how all these women kind of interact with each other and kind of just like they turn a corner and they're a different person. But it feels like it shouldn't make sense, but it does make sense in this really weird and convoluted way. You know, it's it's a film that, in an, you know, its its inconsistencies are consistent, and it's exploring the nature of identity, and uh, you know, it's it's this dramatic complexity of all things. And you, you never know what the status quo is supposed to be. You know, you think you know that it's supposed to be how things are in the beginning of the film, but maybe that's not even the case. Uh, you know, because by the end of the movie, it feels like these women are happy, content, pleased to be where they are. Um, and maybe they are, maybe they aren't. Maybe that's just another facet of, of this ever-shifting reality that they exist in. Uh, Maybe, you know, maybe it's all just a a fever dream or something. But whatever the case may be, it's, it's absolutely captivating. It is so... You know, it, there's there's so much going on in such a brilliant, brilliant way. I was absolutely floored. You know, I I went in thinking, Robert Altman... Uh, this isn't going to be fun. And I came out with my new favorite film from 1977. Uh, you know, better, in my opinion, than Annie Hall, which which took a step down from number one to number two. And I just, I, I love it. I love this movie. 
and I think it is incredible. Incredible. And that's that's it. Uh, go watch it. I, I if you haven't seen it, if you never heard of it, please go check this out. I think it's is really worth a look. It's really worth just just trying to see if it's a it's a film that'll connect with you. <clears throat> I I yeah, that's it. This is my number one. Three women, ninety five. My number one hundred twenty three film of all time. From Robert Altman. Who'd have thought? Who'd have thought? Not me. So, just to run down these films one more time for you guys. From 10 to 1. Next Goal Wins. Scenes from a Marriage. Peeping Tom. Yearbook. Hope. Stolen Kisses. Ikiru. Talk to Her. Spring, Summer, Fall, Winter, and Spring. And Three Women. Three Women leads the way fantastic fantastic month overall some really great movies that i got to discover that i was really pleased with um looking ahead to june um despite the vacation that kind of set me back as far as quantity goes um we are about halfway through june and i've seen 71 movies so picking up the pace trying to increase things and, and make up some of the lost ground <clears throat> um you know i've seen 12 movies for the first time this month that I've that I think that are on the good side of things so um, again we may never have a month where one of the top 10 movies isn't quote unquote good rated at least a 60 uh, we'll see if that ever happens it will not be June uh, it likely ha- it'll likely happen when like I run out of time to do to spend all my time watching movies but that is not the case yet so that being said uh thank you thank you so much for listening to this episode uh i really appreciate it if you enjoyed this you can go find more episodes circlefilm.com or most places where you can find podcasts probably where you're listening to this now uh you can also find plenty of other things on on circlefilm.com including current and past circle of film awards nominees and winners you can get in touch with me at Circle of Film on Twitter or circleoffilm at gmail.com if you have anything you want to share, including your own top movie list. I would love to, to see it and, and look, look at what you think are the best movies of all time. And if you would like to support the show, uh, you can find, find it on patreon.com slash circleoffilm for as little as eight cents an episode. But moving upward from that, you can also find uh, fun rewards and, and things you can get in return for your support. Thank you so much for listening one more time. And as always, have a week. So long, farewell, I'll be the same goodnight. I know she'll never leave me, even as she fades from Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute.